Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and you've probably noticed it hasn't been two weeks since the last episode. It's been nearly four weeks, that's right, nearly a whole month. Wow, Mark, you're getting so lazy. That's not it, honestly, guys. To do the Room Actors Where Are They Now trilogy special took eight and nine interviews. It took a lot of time. Most evenings I was researching and speaking to the people from the room. It completely knocked it out of me, as well as skipped to the end and doing my full-time job. But then I followed it up with Neil Blomkamp's episode, one of the best yet. The response online was the busiest I've ever had. It had more plays and more downloads than all of my other episodes combined, which is just mind-blowing. And then most recently, in mid-October, I released the episode with Tommy Wiseau. And that episode was phenomenal. People loved it and got to hear the real side of Tommy Wiseau. And you've probably seen since. The Disaster Artist is coming. We're only weeks away. And everybody is talking about Tommy Wiseau. And I've been telling you for months and months, it's going to get bigger and the whole world will be doing quotes. The whole world will be wanting to check the room out, thanks to James Franco's new movie. But let's talk about today. It was never going to be that long until you got a new episode. And luckily, I'm here now on episode 22 with my special guest, Alicia Witt. Now this interview all came about was when I went to a Comic Con with London Showmasters and this was only a few months ago. I was very very lucky to meet with Alicia but at that con it was not the right time to do an interview. You've got a number of fans queuing up to pay good money to have a photo, to have an autograph and discuss their love with these actors or actresses or directors and I didn't feel it was the right time to try and do an interview. So me and Alicia have kept in contact, we've been emailing and tweeting each other and just trying to get the right time. You've probably just seen the news this week that she's actually going to be on the new Exorcist TV show, so it's an even better time for this episode to come out. But not only that, I was a huge fan of her in the original Twin Peaks, it was so good to see her come back in the new Twin Peaks after all that time. Dune is one of my favourite films. You have to check that film out if you haven't. You should have. Most people that I've ever spoken to have seen that film. It is a sci-fi masterpiece and one of David Lynch's best pieces of work. And hey, Alicia was in that at such a young age. But that wasn't it. She was in Sybil. She was in The Sopranos. You name it. She's been in some unbelievable TV and films. And so, so good to actually sit down and talk about her experience and many stories in this. But not only that, she is a fantastic musician. So on this interview, you're going to get to hear loads about me talking about her recent EP, what she's doing at the moment, her new release. But also at the end of this episode, I've included one of the songs. So it's got loads on this episode. So why don't we just get to it? So here's my interview with me and Alicia Witt. Enjoy. So my first question for you today is, and this is a big one, what came first for you? Was it acting or playing the piano? They really, believe it or not, came almost exactly at the same time. And it's strange now to think of that because music and acting have remained the two biggest things in my life. But I was seven when I started playing piano and started competing a few months after that. And then I ended up making my first movie, which was Dune, when I was seven as well. So that was just a very big year, I guess. <laughs> Not bad for a uh, debut, either. 
I know. And of course, at the time, I didn't understand just how big it really was. It was the largest budget movie that had been made up at, until that point. And it was a sci-fi phenomenon even then, a, a cult classic. And I didn't realize it had been in the works for so many years. And the the great legend of Dune, to me, it was just something extraordinary to be a part of. And I couldn't believe that grown-ups could play characters for a living and how much fun they all seemed to be having and how it was like being part of a huge family that's amazing on a film set. yeah as a child as well i mean you know it's, it just must be i suppose you probably wouldn't even be digesting the thoughts properly you'd just be kind of just it must be like just being it, a dream that is how it felt it not having grown up around the entertainment industry at all and my parents were school teachers and it just was so far from anything that I had been exposed to up until that point I, I just it was obviously a no-brainer that I'd want to do that with, with the rest of my life if I were given the opportunity because playing characters is of course what kids do anyway and I loved to pretend I was somewhere else and someone else and then there you are on a film set where the budget was so extraordinary that you had the ability to wear these costumes that were just beyond anything you could imagine the special effects they used and the creatures that Carlo Rambaldi had designed especially for the movie like the guild navigator and the sandworms and the floating Baron Harkonnen I mean there was just so much that as a child, I, I just couldn't... I just thought that's what it was like to make movies, really. <laughs> Being on um, set of um, Dune, obviously, it appears when you're watching it back to be just absolutely incredible. Was the set ever dull-looking, or was it as magical as it seems on screen? It was magical. Again, obviously, I was both seven and had never set foot on a film stage before, so it would have seemed magical regardless, I think. But it was spectacular. Having now been on so many Hamzats, it was a very special one. Just gleaming gold colors and the costumes in person were even more incredible than they looked on screen, I think. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing that you, that was your debut. It, it, it's it's insane when you see a lot of people's <laughs> CVs and the way that they build up to parts like that. I mean, what was it that yeah. made you get into acting? Did your parents have a big part of it? Or was it... I mean, you don't just sort of think, oh, I wouldn't mind getting into acting. I'm seven years old. Oh, this is a huge film by David Lynch and a huge budget. I'll go on that. It was, I think, without question, fate that stepped in and made that happen because the series of events that led to it were too ridiculous for it to be anything other than fate. My mother was a reading specialist and she stopped being a teacher when I was born to stay at home with me. And when I was two or so, she started teaching me how to read parts of Shakespeare. And I, I was just a very fast learner when it came to words and reading and she had sent my picture into Good Housekeeping magazine of 
me reading the magazine when I was, I think, two or three. And then from that, the show That's Incredible got in touch with her and asked for me to be on. And at that point, I was doing the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet by heart. And I ended up on that show doing Shakespeare, not thinking that it was in any way a conduit to being an actor that couldn't have been further from anyone's plan at that point. It was just sort of a novelty thing to do. So we went out to Hollywood and it all seemed very glamorous. And I did this show in front of an audience and then I flew back to Massachusetts. And I had been on a couple of other variety shows doing similar types of things. But then a few years after the appearance on That's Incredible aired, the casting director for Dune, Jane Jenkins, was having a really hard time finding the actor that she wanted to play this little girl because, of course, Alia was born with all this knowledge and could speak like an adult and seemed like she was an adult in this little child's body. So she had actually gotten in touch with That's Incredible to find out if they had any ideas and they sent her my tape and she got in touch with my parents through the white pages I guess and we went to New York and I auditioned for David Lynch. It just blows my mind it's just like you said there's there's fate (laughs) and there's luck and there's being in the right place at the right time but it's it's just it is just incredible I mean that's my next question. You obviously got to work with David Lynch again on Twin Peaks, which is one of my favourite TV shows of all time. I mean, you just said then for Dune you got to audition for David Lynch. I know it's seven years old. You're not really even expecting or aware of who David Lynch is. It's just a, probably a guy with white or grey hair that's going to give you the job or not. But <laughs> looking back, that must be just... I just don't even know where to start. How how do you audition and what's your mind like auditioning for David Lynch? As you said, I had no idea who he was. So I just, he seemed very familiar and fatherly and kind. And he's just a fantastic director. He knows exactly what he's looking for. And he has such love about him when he's working with actors that you just really want to do your best for him. So I, I felt that right away. He certainly set a great example because not all, and most directors are not as assured or as full of love, I guess, on the set. He seems very much like family still because I was so little when I first met him and got to know him. I've worked with him now four times, including the recent Twin Peaks. And each time, it doesn't really feel like any time has passed. Again, you, you, you're so in my brain right now, because that's the thing, you know, you then got to go years later. It's, 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 it must be just like a trip down memory lane, but I bet it felt like you'd never been apart, because you were luckily involved in the new Twin Peaks, which I thought was sensational tv um and it's amazing seeing people's reactions online that just didn't understand twin peaks and they've just got involved in it now was it like revisiting old friends from school when you then went to meet david again and the security on that script and i bet you couldn't even tell any of your any of your friends or family like guess where i've been today you know no i really couldn't and weirdly it was i ended up getting called in to do that um, 
couldn't tell anyone, although I did tell my parents, because obviously, how could I not? And they were super excited for me to have seen David, and he said to say hi to them and all of that. So they knew, but they weren't allowed to tell anybody. But then right after I filmed that character, that that little bit on Twin Peaks, I then got the role on Walking Dead, which I also couldn't tell anybody about. And it had been many years since I'd done anything quite that secretive. Oh, and then I did Supernatural, which was also, um, I was allowed to say I was on it, but I I couldn't say much about it. It must be like so so wary everywhere you go and people you talk to just be like, oh God, I'm not sorry, I can't tell tell you about that. Oh, actually, and you must be consciously (laughs) just wanting a nice cup of coffee and not worrying that you might say the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely tricky because... I, I mean, your close friends you have to trust, and and then they're often involved in things as well that they're not supposed to talk about. But if you have that trust between a handful of very close friends who are in the same business, of course, you know they're not going to say anything and you're not going to say anything. Yeah, like if you go on a date with someone, certainly can't just tell them everything you've been up to if some of it is a non-disclosure agreement. Because you don't know what they're going to do with that information. Yeah, how was your night last night? Yeah, it was pretty good. I got to be um, at alive by a zombie. Oh, right, what was that involved in? Oh, um, yeah, I'm just going to be in an episode of The Walking Dead. Please don't tell anyone, yeah. you know. I was a little bit disappointed um, with The Walking Dead because I love the show, but I, I wanted you to stick around for longer. You know, I, I, I saw this announcement, I watched it, I saw you on screen, I thought you were fantastic, and there was this great character development, and I was like, this is brilliant, and then that was it, you were, you were gone. Yeah, I, I felt weird about that announcement too, but it's how they asked, they wanted me to announce it in that way, because the element of surprise on the show where you don't know who's going to live and who's going to die regardless of whether it's an established actor playing that role. I think that's pretty cool. Um, when I auditioned for that role, it was already written. So it wasn't like they, they didn't write that character for me and then kill me off. It was, it was just a one-off role. It was another thing that was very fate like, um, there's a lot of those in my life, I think, but I'd been a huge fan of the show for years and, I remember talking to my agents and managers about how much I wanted to get an audition for the show um, really since the beginning, and I never had. I was never brought in for anything on it. And then, really, it was right after I came back from shooting Twin Peaks, which I couldn't tell anyone about, I got a direct message from Scott Gimple on my Twitter. Wow. And I didn't, I didn't know he knew I existed and didn't know why he would be following me, but he said he wanted to let me know he had just heard me on a podcast, ironically. Wow. And I had been featured on this podcast when my last album came out, the one that Ben Foltz produced. And I had played music on it, but also had talked about my acting. And he let me know on the message that he was a, a fan of mine and just that that sort of thing. So it was really nice. And... I was like, wow, well, it so happens I'm a huge fan of yours, too. I love The Walking Dead, and it's such an honor to hear from you. And he said, oh, that's good to know. And then a few days later, the audition came through for this role. And he told me later he wasn't really sure if it was the right role for me. I think there was maybe something coming up later on down the road that was perhaps a little longer of a role that he thought I might be more right for, but 
the audition for this one, um, I mean, as I understand now that I understand who the character was supposed to be, it was, I just felt like I knew who this woman was. So I wouldn't change anything. I'm, I know it was supposed to be just that one role and that episode specifically. And it just, for so many reasons, that was a thing that had to happen in my life. And I'm so grateful for it. I can still picture the scene now at the end when Carol and Maggie are leaving and we actually get to see you turn. Uh, and at that yeah. point, you're completely faceless and it looks good. I mean, that's one of the best things about The Walking Dead. It doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look tacky. I mean, what was it like to actually go through the process of becoming the faceless character in that part? That must have been something very different to anything else you've done and been involved in. I have a confession, which is it's kind of heartbreaking, but so because that episode contains so much in the way of I mean, it was just a full episode. We were all on that same set. We had so much dialogue. There were these scenes that went on for pages and pages. So, and they didn't spare any time when it came to um, getting those just right, which was really great. So it felt in many ways like making a play on those days. And then, of course, we had the fights and the guns and the action and the stunts and the day on which my character got killed and there was that big final fight scene we just had so much to do all in one day they didn't have time to have me go through the special effects works for both the face eating and the zombie, so that was actually somebody else in the zombie. No! Face. I know. You just told me that Santa doesn't exist. <laughs> I know. I know. I kind of hate saying that, but it's the truth. I'll pretend you didn't say I it, wanted and to in do my it head so it's badly, you. And they certainly would have, they would have had me do it, but we just didn't have time. Because the... I don't know if you ended up watching The Talking Dead after I did. my episode, but... Okay, so you know... There was meant to be another thing which malfunctioned, as they do sometimes. Um, it was a very elaborate neck vein that was meant to spurt with blood. Yeah. So the face eating was only part of it. And that obviously turned out spectacularly well. But then the neck thing was the part that took the longest for them to do, and... I got to go into the big, fancy, magical special effects makeup trailer, which I wouldn't have gone in had we not done that. And they they did this incredible prosthetic, which had the cord that ran down my back, and they were squirting That's very the cool. corn syrup out as the stunt walker, Chris, was eating my neck. And it just, it, it malfunctioned, so it ended up dribbling all the way down my clothes and my shoes filled up with blood and I was just a sopping, disgusting mess at the end of it. But it was super fun. I just wish that had worked. But I'm, pi- I'm picturing so... um, I'm picturing you looking like Carrie at the yeah. end. It just covered in blood. <laughs> Absolutely head to toe. That is what I looked at. I posted one picture, which was actually the only picture I got from being on the set. Lauren Cohen took it of me and sent it when I had just finished the scene. I'm going to check um, that I out. And I do look like Carrie. I'm, I'm covered with blood. <laughs> it's ridiculous. 
It's amazing, really, because, like, you've been in some of my favourite things. You know, Twin Peaks is... It's it's Twin Peaks because it's such a cult classic. To have it again is incredible. But you're also in The Sopranos, which for me is probably one of the... Maybe the best TV show of all time. And you're in one of my favourite yeah. episodes, D-Girl. Again, yeah, that was please fun. tell me this is fate, <laughs> because you need to either put the money on the lottery for me or something because the luck you have and the the run you've been on i mean the sopranos it's it's not just your underground small tv show you've been in the greatest tv of history i'm aware that it's it's kind of crazy on one hand and it seems like incredible luck and yet it's it's a strange career to be sure i think that you know there's still it's like there's a lot I think of people who aren't familiar with me or are just becoming familiar and it's it's sort of been that way my whole life there hasn't been with the exception of the time that I was on the show Sybil or maybe when I was on Law and Order um I haven't felt any way that there was this sort of overwhelming mass recognition which is kind of great because it lets me go about my music and just walk down the street like I don't I don't have you have a bit more sort, sort of, of um normality I mean you're not going to be mobbed everywhere totally. you go and no what's really cool is when you do find out about yourself you're then saying oh it's the girl from Twin Peaks oh it's Sybil right. oh what is that the same girl that's in Dune and Sopranos yeah. <laughs> and wasn't she in that film Four Rooms with Madonna and then it all starts clicking and you kind of like how did I not notice this before? Yeah, and I, I do love that. And and part of that is, I think, to do with the fact that I've tried to avoid playing the same roles over and over again. It's been a very conscious effort. That part doesn't really have to do with luck. And exactly, I was aware yeah. at a young age that if I kept playing the roles that I was offered and just worked as much as I could, then I was going to be known as that girl who does that role. And the whole reason I wanted to be an actor is because it's fun to dig deep into characters that are nothing like you. And it's really easy in this, in this profession, especially when you're younger, it's easy to just keep playing the same role and, and work. I don't know. I I don't know. I, I just didn't want to do that. And I have so much so, respect um, for that because just just the list I just said then Sybil, Twin Peaks, Sopranos, you know, Four Rooms, everything is so so different that I'm glad you went with that because some people just rest on their capabilities and become so tight cast that you just get bored of the same character and when they come on the screen you're like, "Oh, here we go again." With you, right. I never know what I'm going to get. That's good. That makes me very happy. <laughs> I love that I often when people know they've seen me in something, they often can't place what it was. They they know it's something, but then I can't guess what it was. I can't I can't figure it out anymore because there's been so many things and many things I've even forgotten about that I don't know if it was playing. Just before I start talking about your music, there's one more question I wanted to talk about with your film career. Now, you got to work with one of the best directors out there. For me, he's one of the best filmmakers, is Cameron Crowe. Um, yeah. Almost Famous is probably one of my favourite films of all time, but you were also in Vanilla Sky, which I think is one of the most underrated films of all time. People don't know about it, and when they do, they love it because of the soundtrack and Jason Lee and Tom Cruise and everyone else. Did he actually... I love yeah, it's, it's, Vanilla it's, Sky. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. I mean, did he 
actually discuss with you in the filming that this role might be a bit of a reference to your role in Dune or I just wanted to know what the sort of conversations you had with him were like. Oh, well, what happened is that I auditioned for the Cameron Diaz role. And, wow. Um, and he called me personally whenever he called to offer me this role to say that it wasn't going to work out for the role I had auditioned for, but that there was a much smaller role that he would love for me to play and and that there wasn't all that much to do, but he, he promised to make it really special. And he said, if you say yes, I'll do a jig. And and I said, well, of course I will. <laughs> I was I was so excited to be hearing from Cameron Crowe. And yeah, I just wanted to be in his movie. So I said yes, and he said, I'm doing a jig right now. And I said, well, you have to do it again when I see you, because I can't see you at the moment. <laughs> so he did. He did a little jig when I showed up on the set. I love Cameron Crowe, and it must just be incredible to be around him and his music and his influences and his soundtracks and the heart in his films. He, for me, he's like a modern-day John Hughes. Yeah, he's incredible. I was just telling the director of the show I'm on at the moment about him last night because this director surprised me by playing music before a couple of our takes, and um, Cameron is the only other director I've ever worked with who does that. Cameron takes it one step further, though. He doesn't, in my recollection, he never said action once. It was always a music cue, so he would blast whatever song he felt like was going to help us to get what he was looking for in that take. And then he'd play it sometimes for up to 20 seconds or 25 seconds. And then once it ended, that was our cue to begin. That's awesome. Yeah, so cool, because it just keeps you in that mood, and there's a language about music that is um, completely wordless, and sometimes you don't have to explain to the actors so much what kind of vibe you're going for. It's easier to just do it in music and get you out of your head a little bit. How nicely have we passed this through to the topic of music? It was like it was planned. <laughs> I know. I, I noticed that too. And I know we didn't plan it no, that way, but it just no. happens um, to be that Cameron Crowe is a super musical director. I mean, I have spoke to some of the actors that worked on We Bought a Zoo, and he said that he never stopped playing music. So even when they're acting in the background, there was these little speakers, and they were playing music. So while they're acting away, you couldn't hear it, but they were hearing certain songs to create certain emotions. And I was like, wow you know, just to be on set would have been a dream. And that's something that was one of the first things I saw when I met you. You know, you you were there that night in London playing a gig. And it's, with full respect, sometimes quite hard for a well-known actor or actress to be taken seriously in the music world because people just associate them as being talented in any one field. And I think it's wrong, you know. So do you, do you find it hard that people take your music seriously at first? Because your your songwriting is unbelievable and you're... you're gifted in both so is it a tough one or have you found it quite respectful out there you know i think i feel as though that's in many ways been an example of timing looking after a lot of that too i knew when i started taking this seriously which was about nine years ago i started writing all the time and playing gigs and i was in new york working on law and order um, then and I knew that this was a very important missing piece of my life because once I started doing it, it seemed that 
everything kind of clicked together. Um, I didn't feel as though I was putting all of my energy into acting, and then it felt like the acting was better because it was in its rightful place, which was sharing with with music. To have that space taken up with unfinished songs and melodies that are constantly roaming around my brain is is definitely my natural state of being. So to start playing those songs out in public and getting brave enough to test them and see whether people out there thought I was good enough, that, that was very scary but very necessary. And I knew that I knew that it was something I was supposed to be doing, but I also knew that I wasn't as good at it in the beginning as I needed to get if I was going to do it seriously. So I think I'm lucky that I played a few small shows to start with and got some of the nerves out and just started building up my confidence. Weirdly, the first gig that I ever played went a really long way to building my confidence. It was opening for Jimmy Webb, the legendary Jimmy Webb. And you, you don't do things smallly, do you? Like your debut no. in TV and film <laughs> is Twin Peaks and Dune, and then you go and open up for a legend. I was waiting for you just to say like yeah. a small slot in an underground bar in New York, but you go and open up for a huge, huge name. I mean, it's absurd. That's definitely an example of fate stepping in in the very beginning. And not only did I open for him, but despite how green I was and how nervous I was, my little opening set of three original songs went great. It was a fantastic gig, and I nailed it, and I felt so good about it. And I ended up meeting Jimmy Webb at another show that he did that I was brought to at Chris Noth's club, the cutting room. And I met him and he remembered me immediately from the gig the week before. And he said, you're a great songwriter. And I almost burst into tears because to, to have heard that from Jimmy Webb as I was just starting out. And he said it in a way where he could have said, Hey, nice work. You know, he could have said any number of, casual polite things if he didn't there was no reason for him to look at me in the eye and say you're a great songwriter i i just to be going for years and gigs that i played that didn't go so well or times when people you know i i did it's i've done a lot of the work myself a lot of the legwork in terms of putting all of it together and finding producers to work with and and it, getting the music released on my own. I mean, um, when he said to you those words, I would have been like, "Can I record that and have that as a quote on my album cover?" Because that's gonna, that that's my go-to quote to kind of give myself the biggest pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the Rolling uh, Stone cover, you know. That's that's the words you want next to your name, you know. Yeah. You do it all on yourself, and that's what I respect so much. I mean, you know, you you. You know, you've grown up playing classical music and a lot of covers, but that transition to then writing your own music and it's kind of that rock pop genre and everything else is is incredible. And then, like you said, you got to work with Ben Folds as your producer and doing it independently. You have full freedom to do what you want instead of just kind of 
going the easy route of letting some other producer get involved and take over and just do pop stuff. It must be nice that you get that full control of your own sound. Yeah, it definitely has been. It has been. Um, and the EP that I just that I just recorded that I'm longing to release into the world, um, it's a whole other sound too. That was an example of letting this extraordinary producer, Jakir King, kind of run with what I was doing and take it in a direction he heard it going in, which is much more pop. There's piano featured on all five songs, but it's it's got a really cool pop vibe that I never would have come up with on my own in a million years. I'm just so excited for people to hear it. But at this moment, I'm still waiting on these two labels that have expressed interest and it would be really useful for so many reasons if one of them were to decide to release it because that will help it get out to a much bigger audience so i'm i'm in a bit of a holding pattern which drives me crazy because i love to control all this stuff myself and it must be um, a weird one to be in because you've had the control since the start and now you're kind of waiting on others and I'd just be like, I want to push publish now and just everyone hear it. Oh gosh, yes. And um, you may be familiar already, but I raised the funds for this through Kickstarter. Yeah, I saw on your Twitter and saw the, the crowdfunding, which is great. Yeah, it's such a, uh, such a, an honour, to put it mildly, to have made an album in this way because I know that it wouldn't exist. It couldn't financially exist uh, as an indie artist without a label funding. There's no way I could have worked with this producer otherwise. The fact that all these people came forward based on my previous work and together we we raised the funds to basically make a studio EP is, is just, or like a, I should say a label EP. Yeah. This this producer, really, he's the one that produced the Neil Horan album that just came out. And yeah, he did James Bay's record that came out a few years ago that everyone heard. And so he knows his stuff, and he gets the the crystal kind of radio friendly, perfect produced sound. Yes, yes. Listen to you. You're like, yes. I just want you to hear it. <laughs> I know. I'm longing for you to hear it. It's so cool. <sighs> If I just release it today on Spotify, it's like, that's not the right way to do it. No. And the day it comes out is very important. You want you want to target things and do the right publicity for it. And the wait will be worth it. Stuff. It will be right. It's just, it must be just, every day must feel like a week. It does, especially because I have 640 pledgers who want to hear the music also. <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, doing this interview has been a really lovely reminder of how everything in my life really does happen at exactly the right time so i have to trust that <laughs> the release of the album is going to be exactly the same way it'll come out when it's supposed to it's called Fifteen Thousand days which is how long i've been here on earth i'm, so I'm thinking i might call the episode Fifteen Thousand days now oh good that makes sense <laughs> That my age was so close to a round number like that, I figured that's a really cool album title. My 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 final question regarding the music, and it's a big one, but are there a certain kind of artists? I mean, what actually inspires you and influences you to write? And I know that's a 
real cliche cheesy question but I think you're not going to give the usual response of oh love life what actually inspires <laughs> you to sit there with that pen and that piano or guitar or whatever you do to create from scratch because for me I, I play guitar I'm a musician I, I look at people like Jeff Buckley you know I think mm-hmm. there's no one in the world that could sing and play like him Pearl Jam Eddie Vedder people like that but what is it for you that inspires that I want to write a song today it's I do it in in I mean it happens in many different ways but it's usually two ways that I write which are very different from each other um I have ideas on a daily basis. A line will come to me that I really love or a title or a chunk of verse. And I have a long notepad list of started songs and ideas. And sometimes it'll come out in a long burst of inspiration where I look at it the next day and I realize, oh, that's almost a complete set of lyrics right there all to the same song but then other times it'll just be a line that arrives like a burst of it's like a song that's trying to channel itself I guess where I know what that line is but I don't know anything else and when I'm in Nashville I do writing sessions quite often and those are the opposite of just sitting down when the spirit moves you Um, you meet at a certain time, usually 10 or 11 in the morning and you write for three hours. And then often you go off and do another writing session at 4 PM or three, 3 PM and you write for three hours and that's your day's work. That's how professional songwriters do it. So it's a fantastic tool for disciplining yourself to, to working through the craft of it. And some of my best songs have been written that way. Um, I'll often bring to those sessions a couple of ideas based on who it is I'm writing with. I might look over my list of notes that morning over coffee and think, okay, this person wrote these three songs. I bet they would know what to do with this line and maybe we'll riff on this today. And so I'll play them that or if it's a melody idea I have or something that can then jump us off into a direction neither of us would have gone on our own. It's it's fascinating, really. I, mean, I don't know if, as a person, my personality is in the place where I'd be forced, so if I went somewhere to try and get in that headspace and that attitude of kind of, right, you need to be creative now and write, I think I'd be too too much pressure on myself. Yeah. But if it works and you can train yourself to do it, and people do, then that's why they're successful, mm-hmm. I suppose, but... It's very interesting here how you do it and how it works so well in so many different ways. Yeah, it's and it hasn't always been that way. It's certainly something like anything creative. You get better at it the more you do it. So you have to be willing to write many songs that nobody's ever going to hear because they're just not the best songs you've written. But then again, there's with working with somebody like Shakir, I was able to send him ideas that you know there were so many songs I sent him about 18 songs that I would have been happy to record and let him do the choosing and two of the songs that he picked happened to be songs I wrote on my own several years ago 
that's a, a neat feeling too that you know there's songs that I haven't done anything with yet that are fully written that maybe will emerge again at some point it's nice it's nice to know they've not been lost and they've still got the time and day and it's just about the right time for those songs to kind of blossom really it's it's it's, it's great I bet a lot of people write songs now nah, that's for that time I'm going to bin them and that's it you know yeah to end this episode today what song would you love for people to listen to right now obviously we're not allowed and i'd love to put one of the tracks off the new ep (laughs) on that would be unreal the first ever listening is on here but what song would you love to end this episode with today for people to get a really nice idea of your songs and your passion in music gosh it's so hard to pick one it is really hard we can finish um, the episode with a whole ten tracks if you want, but let's let's pick your <laughs> let's pick <laughs> two hour episode. Well, I but. would I would have to pick. I mean, a song very dear to my heart is the more recent one that I released, which I wrote about unrequited love. Uh, you know, just having had a conversation where I, I was so aware that even though my feelings weren't exactly reciprocated, I knew that my old pattern of just kind of tuning out or walking away from from the connection wasn't the right way to go. And so I, I wrote a whole bunch of lyrics and a chorus called Love Anyway, and then when I was in Nashville at a co-writing session, I wrote the rest of it with Jeff Cohen, who is a friend of mine and an incredible songwriter. So, so I had that song and that was sort of in my brain as, as something I would put on an album. And then the day after the U S elections in November, I was playing that song and it was making me cry. And I realized that although the song is about unrequited love and how we must just love anyway, despite how that might feel, um, I realized it had so much relevance to the U.S. and to the world. In fact, there's just so much ugliness going on at the moment and we mustn't give into that. We have to just put love first, even if it's with people that have opinions that are vastly different from ours. So I would love to play everybody love anyway. Perfect. Thank you. So there it is. There's my interview with Alicia Witt. Now you probably just heard, we just discussed the single and the song that you're about to hear. And I don't really want to get in the way of that too much because It is a case of wanting to hear that song. We've built it up. We've talked about it. So why do you want to hear any more of me? The song Love Anyway is coming up in just a couple of minutes time. But before then, let me do the usual. I want to thank all of you listeners out there for taking the time to listen. Each episode, the numbers go up and up. Each episode, I see more people following me on Twitter. I see more people liking the Facebook page, liking the Instagram page, and people's responses are phenomenal. It's what makes all this worthwhile. Remember, I don't get paid to podcast. I don't get paid to do skip to the end. It's all because I enjoy it and I have a huge passion for podcasting and letting the guys out there experience the interviews that I get to do through Mark and me. 
So thank you all very much for taking the time to listen, for taking the time to go on my social media and let me know. We have got more episodes in the pipeline. I've been very busy the last couple of weeks putting a bit of a special together. I really enjoyed doing the Room Actors special and the Turbo Kids special, so I'm kind of working on doing a special again on a a film documentary sort of style that I want to make more people in the world aware of. So that's a bit of a clue. But you know me, I might just throw a random interview out there in a couple of weeks' time. That's the fun part about Mark and me. There is no strict schedule. So until the next time, here's the single coming up. I want you all to listen and go on Alicia's website, go on the social media, go on the Facebook, go on the Twitter. And I'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks' time. the story ever started But you chose a different book Used to be Sophie with me Now suddenly you're guarded I've lost you now I know that look And everything that you're not saying I've heard it all before So I'm gonna keep my mouth shut Keep my heart wide open I'm gonna keep my head up Like I know where I'm going I'm gonna look you in the eye Stare down faith and all the signs that say Nothing's gonna change change my heart's refrain when I know what I feel and you won't tell me what you're needing I'd do anything and everything to make this real but once again I've just been dreaming words are gonna fail me too much left to say so I'm gonna keep my mouth shut keep my heart wide open I'm gonna keep my head up like I know where I'm going I'm gonna look you in the eye stare down faith and all the signs that say nothing's gonna change and love Change.